today or you're using a smart device, I want to invite you to turn with me or swipe with me to the book of Luke. And we're going to land in chapter 19, the book of Luke chapter 19. The Bible's divided into these two big sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Luke is found in the New Testament. That's the second section of the Bible. And it's actually the third book in. You've got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And we love the book of Luke so much that my wife and I, we decided to name our son Luke. And that that really has nothing to do with it, but, you know, I guess it works. So we're going to land there in just just a minute in Luke chapter 19. Um, Have you guys, anybody ever heard of this concept called man-looking? Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say man-looking? Now, everybody, if you are married... If you are a woman and you are married, you should know exactly what man-looking is. Because whether or not you've clearly defined it, chances are you have experienced it over and over and over again throughout your married relationship. Um, There's a website online that defines man-looking as this. See if you can identify. The act of looking for an item and failing to locate it when it is in plain sight or when its location has been carefully described to the searcher. Man-looking may also be referred to as temporary male blindness. And in my house, it would go something kind of like this. My wife would say, hey, pumpkin. I don't know. She doesn't call me pumpkin, but that just makes it sound so much more endearing. Um, She would say, hey, can you go to the pantry and get the chicken broth for me? It's on the third shelf from the bottom all the way to the right in behind the tomato soup next to the rice. And I'm over there and I'm going, I can't, I can't see. I I don't. And then, you know, honey, I don't see it. Well, it's there. I promise. I put it there. You know, when I put the groceries away, I put it right. I know exactly where it is. And I'm standing and I'm, I'm looking and everything and no, I. It's not there. I don't see it anywhere. And then finally, after, you know, this back and forth, uh, you know, a few different times, she walks over in a huff and will slide the tomato soup out of the way. And then lo and behold, there's the chicken broth. And I'm always like, well, you didn't tell me I had to move something. You said it was right. I mean, clearly that was in my, like, that's, that's not on me. Like, that's on you for putting the tomato soup in front of it. So that I couldn't see it. So like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's, not, that's not on me. That's not on me. You know, anybody ever experienced that? All of the wives in the room are nodding like this. Yes, yes. All the men are like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Man looking. You know, a lot of us, that's kind of our approach to Jesus sometimes. Oh, it just got real, like real quick. Everybody got like real quiet. Oh, he's serious. That's how our approach is to Jesus sometimes. You know, we, we look for Jesus in the situations of our life, but a lot of times he's not where we expect him to be or he's not how we expect him to be. And see, a lot of us, we want our Jesus in a certain way. 
And we have these expectations about who Jesus is and who he ought to be and where he ought to show up and how he ought to show up. And so what we do is we create this nice little box and we tell Jesus, hey, whenever you show up in my life, it's totally cool for you to do so as long as you fit within these parameters. But for those of us that search for Jesus in that way, for those of us that we try to cram Jesus, we try to stuff him in this box, we try to limit him to a set of boundaries that we've set up, what we do is we end up cheapening who he is and make him out to be something other than the Messiah. And so that's the problem that I want to try to tackle today as we jump into Luke 19. Because here's the deal, this man looking for the Messiah, it's not like a new concept. It's been going on for thousands of years. And people have been missing Jesus Christ because their expectations of him, for him, and about him were in the wrong place. He was right in front of their face the whole time. But time and time again, they missed him. So we're going to take a look at Luke 19 today as we celebrate Palm Sunday. We're going to start in verse 28. And here's a little background to let you know what is taking place right now. Jerusalem, the holy city of Israel, is abuzz with excitement. People had come from all around, as was Jewish custom, to celebrate the Passover feast. And so what was, um, what was normally a city of between 50 to 100,000, depending on the time frame, and when you look at it, some, some people estimate that there were upwards of a million people that would have been in this city in and around this time that have come together with their friends and their loved ones to come together and celebrate this Passover feast. And maybe you're not 100% sure about what the Passover feast is, and that goes all the way back to um, the time of Moses at the beginning of the Old Testament. And so Moses, he was the leader of the Hebrews, what would become the Israelite nation. And he grew up as an Egyptian. Many of you remember maybe from Sunday school how they took Moses as a baby and they put him in the basket and placed him in the bulrushes in the Nile River. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him and she takes him into the palace and raises him as her own. And then Moses grows up as a son of Pharaoh. And then later he is driven out. He runs away from Egypt and, and runs to his heritage as a Hebrew. And he comes back to Egypt to, um, to, to lead the Israelites out of slavery, the bondage that they were placed in there in Egypt. And he goes time and time again to Pharaoh over and over and over. Pharaoh, who, who is the king of the Egyptians, and he goes to them and he's saying, let my people go, let my people go. Many of you, maybe you've seen this like on a movie, um, you know, around, around Easter time or, or um, in, a, in a play or something like that. There's a, a bunch of different incarnations of this story. And these plagues happen and there's like flies and gnats and grasshoppers and boils and all this terrible stuff. And then it leads to the death of the firstborn and, and all that. You can, you can read this incredible story in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And so um, the Passover originally takes place where uh, Moses, he gets all of the Israelites together and he he warns them that the death angel is going to come in and is going to kill the firstborn of everyone in the entire region, but that there's a way to escape it. And the way that they escaped it was, is they killed, they slaughtered a lamb 
And then they took a hyssop branch and they dipped the hyssop branch into the blood of the lamb and they painted the doorpost of their homes with the blood of this lamb. And so whenever the death angel came in, if the blood was on the doorpost of the home, then the death angel would pass over and no harm would take place. And so the, the Israelites, they came together year after year after year to celebrate this Passover that the death angel passed over because of the blood of the lamb. Some of you can already see the correlation of what is taking place here. And it's on this first Palm Sunday that, that many of the sections of our Bible refer to this act as the triumphal entry that Jesus is coming with his disciples, with his friends, his family, his loved ones. He's entering the city of Jerusalem and he's, in essence, he's announcing his authority as king of Israel, as the Messiah. And so that's what's taking place here in the midst of all kinds of political um, turmoil and, and emotions would be um, running at an all-time high because at this point, Israel is now subject to Roman rule and the, the Jews, they are oppressed by the Roman government. And so the people are looking for the Messiah to come and there's a great expectation and there's this massive following because for the, the three years uh, prior to this, Jesus has been engaging in his earthly ministry and he's been doing uh, teaching all over, the, all over the area and he's been performing miracles and, and all of a sudden there's this great following and the people have, uh, they think that he might in fact be the one that the Old Testament proclaimed about, that the Old Testament uh, prophets prophesied about, that this might be the one. And so there's this great deal of anticipation, and Jesus comes onto the scene, and the, the writer of Luke, um, whose name happens to be Luke, records it like this, verse 28. After Jesus said this, he went on toward Jerusalem. And as Jesus came near Bethphage and Bethany, towns near the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his followers. He said, go to the town you can see there. And when you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. All right, so it's important to note that this, this colt or this donkey that Jesus sends his disciples after to get for him, that no one has ever ridden it. That's significant because this particular donkey, it was set aside for a special or for a holy purpose. No one had ever ridden this donkey, and it was set aside for the purpose that Jesus needed it for. And so he sends his disciples to get it. And then this is what happens, verse 31. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say that the master needs it. So the two followers went into the town and they found the colt just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying it, its owners came out and asked the followers, why are you untying our colt? And the followers answered simply, the master needs it. See, this likely would not have been a prearranged agreement between Jesus and the owners of this donkey. Instead, this, is, this serves as a nod to the authority of Jesus that while, yes, on earth he was fully man, he was also fully God and he was orchestrating the things as they were to come to pass. 
And these, these owners of, the, of this donkey, they would have likely been followers of Jesus since they seem to have understood when the disciples simply said, the master needs it. They would have known who the master was. See, this was an act of surrender of the people, the owners of this donkey. It was an act of surrender on their behalf to give up the thing that they possessed because the master was in need of it. Just as a sidebar, what do you have that the master might be in need of today? What is in your possession that you would say, God, search me and know me. Take the things that I haven't set it apart for a holy, a special purpose. Is that the cry of your heart today? That you want to be used by God for a special purpose? That's what's going on right here. Was this act of surrender of the people to Jesus that they gave of the things that they had for a special purpose? Verse 35. So they, the disciples, they brought it, this donkey. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt's back and put Jesus on it. And Jesus rode toward Jerusalem while others spread their coats on the road before him. See, all of this happened not out of some sheer coincidence. It happened uh, on purpose to fulfill a prophecy that comes to us all the way back in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament in chapter 9, verse 9. And it reads this way. It says, Rejoice greatly, people of Jerusalem. Shout for joy, people of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He does what is right and he saves He is gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. Jesus would have known this prophecy. And so by making these things come to pass, he's beginning to align himself with the Old Testament prophecies that point to him as the king of Israel, as the Messiah. That he was the long-awaited one that the people of Israel were looking for. And so Jesus is, he is embodying this personification of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And he's starting to reveal to everyone that this is in fact who I am. And so he gets on this donkey, they place him on this donkey, and he begins to ride in and and. We call it Palm Sunday because people, they lined the streets and they took palm branches. It's not recorded in this, um, in, in this particular uh, section, but in, in the other gospels, in Matthew um, and Mark and John, they talk about taking the palm branches and waving the palm branches. And a palm branch was a symbol of victory. The people were beginning to recognize that their victory was finally come, that, that he had showed up on the scene and that in and through Jesus, so they thought or so they hoped that they were going to be victorious. And then others of them, they took off their, their, cloak, their cloaks and their coats and their outer garments and they, they laid them on the road so that Jesus on this donkey, that he could walk over them. And anytime you took off your, in, in this day and age, you took off your cloak, your outer garment, and you placed it underneath the feet of a dignitary or royalty, it was an act of surrender or submission to their authority. So the people are proclaiming victory and they're saying, we're, we're submissive to you and, and to your authority and, and we're giving you the glory and the praise. And then this is what happens in verse 37. It says, as he was coming close to Jerusalem, 
on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of followers began joyfully shouting praise to God for all the miracles they had seen. And they said, verse 38, God bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There is peace in heaven and glory to God. This phrase actually comes to us out of the book of Psalms in um, chapter 118 and verse 26. So the people were, were singing this song that had been passed down to them historically through their lineage and through their faith. And so they begin to proclaim these things that were written thousands of years ago previously in the Old Testament. They begin to proclaim these things to, for, and about Jesus and what this did was this linked Jesus to the Davidic lineage, the, the lineage of David, who was the most well-known, the most powerful, the most beloved king in the history of Israel. See, it points to the idea that they were saying these things about him, that they were singing these songs about him and proclaiming these things about him. It points to the idea that the people of Israel... They anticipated their Messiah to be that of a politician who would come in and overthrow Roman oppression through the act of military force. They were looking for a warrior. They were looking for a king in all of his glory and splendor with a crown upon his head and with a sword at his side and a shield on his arm to come riding in on a majestic stallion and to take control of the Roman government by force. They were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for what they'd had previously in their history, but their eyes were blinded to the fact that Jesus' kingdom, it wasn't one of earthly, uh, of, of the physical world. It wasn't one of the earth. Rather, it was a spiritual kingdom that would transcend the world as they knew it. Jesus didn't come in as an earthly king. He came in as our heavenly father, the king of kings. Amen? Amen. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell your followers not to say these things. What they were, the songs that they were singing, the, the praise and adoration that they were giving him from, from the book of Psalms and that they were, they were linking him to David and everything. The Pharisees didn't take kindly to that. And so they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you need to tell these people to stop saying these things about you. The Pharisees, they were the Jewish religious leaders of the time. And they were well known for going over and above the law, the, 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 the laws of the Jews that told people how they needed to live and how they needed to act. They actually added things onto those laws and they created all of these rules and regulations that would guide and govern the people as far as what they could and could not do in order to keep themselves within the boundary of the law. So they were these very staunch legalistic, religious people, the kind of people that just rubbed you the wrong way. Those were the kind of people that the Pharisees were. And they, they elevated themselves. They thought they were better than the rest of the people. Anyone that proclaimed to be a Jew, that proclaimed to be faithful to the one true God, they, they elevated themselves above that. They thought that they were in a league of their own because of their strict adherence to the law. And they were hopeful that their Messiah would initiate a revolution through adherence to Jewish law that would ultimately overturn Jewish oppression 
by the Romans in a non-violent manner. So here you have these, these, just the commoners, they were wanting a warrior. They were wanting someone to come in and to, to overthrow Rome at the tip of a sword. All right? But the Pharisees, they were wanting it to be nonviolent because they had a prominent place in the community. They had, they had some, some prominent standing with the members of the Roman government, and they didn't want it overthrown in a violent manner because they wanted to keep their position. They wanted to remain in their place of authority and power. They didn't want their apple cart upset, and so they wanted the Messiah to come in and just show everybody that the right way to live was through this strict and staunch and legalistic adherence to the law, and that somehow that would create a revolution and that everybody would just get in line behind who he was supposed to be. But if the law were sufficient in and of itself, why would we need a Messiah, right? If you and I, or anyone for that matter, could be saved by living in accordance with the law, then there would be no need for the Messiah to come in the first place. So they had missed it from the get-go. They thought that they could just make it to heaven, that they could, that they could be these kind of people by following the rules and doing these things in a certain way. But here's the deal. None of us could live up to the law. Not even them. There was all... There, there's, there's always a time throughout history, throughout the course of our lives, that no matter how hard we try, no matter how legalistic we become, we're always going to fall short of the rules and the regulations of the law. And it is not the law who saves them, who saves us, or who saves anyone. It is grace. We aren't saved by the law. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's what he came in to, to, to overturn. And the Pharisees, they didn't like that. And so they were saying, you need to tell these people to stop doing this. In essence, what they were doing, they were asking Jesus or, or they, they were asking him, tell these people that you're not the Messiah. Tell these people that you are not the one that they are saying that you are. And this is what Jesus says. I love this in verse 40. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if my followers didn't say these things, then the stones would cry out. Ultimately, by his refusal to submit to the Pharisees' request, Jesus is telling them what they don't want to hear. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that fits the bill for the things that they are saying about me. And I'm not going to tell them to hush. But even if I did, these rocks right here on the road, they would open up their mouths and proclaim because when the Messiah comes on the scene, he is deserving to be heralded and to be welcomed in with all the glory and praise and adoration that he Deserve. So even if the people shut up, these rocks are going to proclaim the very truth that the Messiah is in your presence today. Verse 41. As Jesus came near Jerusalem, he saw the city and cried for it. He saw the city and cried for it. As he's coming down this, this precipice and he's looking out, it, it would have been in this view up by the Mount of Olives, he would have had a view over the entire city. And so as he's coming in and he catches a glimpse of the city, he begins to weep. He begins to cry over the city. And it's important to note that despite the fact that he knew what his fate would be in the coming days, Jesus didn't weep over his impending suffering. Instead, he cried on behalf of his beloved city and its people who he had come to save. That was Jesus' concern, not for his own well-being, 
but for the fact that this city had missed it. That the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was in their presence, but for whatever reason, they couldn't see him because their expectations were not what they should have been, and they missed out, and it made him sad, and he cried for them. This is what he said in verse 42. Jesus said, I wish you knew today what would bring you peace. Isn't that what they wanted? Peace? They were tired of being opposed and oppressed. They just wanted to live lives of peace. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want peace? And Jesus was saying right there that peace was attainable. I wish that you knew today what would bring you peace. And I believe the same thing that he cried for Jerusalem over all those years ago. He's crying the same thing over us today. I wish that you knew today what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from you. The time is coming when your enemies will build a wall around you and will hold you in on all sides. They will destroy you and all your people and not one stone will be left on another. All this will happen because you did not recognize the time when God came to save you. See, this is actually a, a prophecy that Jesus proclaims here over the city. And it, historically, you can go back in the history books and, and you can read outside of the Bible. Maybe you're here today and you're not too big on the Bible and you're like, I don't really know if this stuff happened or not. You can check it out. AD 70, a guy by the name of General Titus of Rome came in and leveled the city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of this pro uh, prophecy that Jesus had proclaimed on it. But it wasn't just a prophecy of things to come in the physical realm. It was also a prophecy of things to come in the spiritual realm. See, to miss out on the Messiah is to miss out on salvation. And that ultimately leads to our destruction. If we miss out on the Messiah, then we're doomed. We are doomed. See, the crowd that day, they were looking for political deliverance from Rome, but Jesus came to bring spiritual deliverance from sin. The people of that time, they were looking for someone to come in and overthrow Caesar, but Jesus came onto the scene to overthrow Satan. Later in the same week, the Pharisees would have Jesus arrested and the people that stood there waving palm branches and throwing their coats on the ground and shouting his and singing his praises and his adorations. Instead, they would have turned those things to shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Here's the thing that I want you guys to catch on to. As I was, as I was praying and as I was preparing Asking the Lord, what do the people need to hear today? This is what I feel like he just placed in my spirit. And this, this kind of um, all week long, I've just been, just been rolling this around in, in my heart and in my mind and everything. Here's what I want you to grab a hold of today. It's simply this. You can be a part of the crowd, but still miss Christ. You can be a part of the crowd, but still miss 
Christ. The Pharisees were there. They had their expectations. They had created their box. And Jesus is there in their midst, the Messiah that they'd hoped for. But they missed him. The crowd that was waving palm branches and laying their coats on the ground and proclaiming his praises, they were looking for their Messiah as well, the one that was prophesied, the one that they had longed for. But because they were looking for a warrior on a mighty horse instead of Jesus on a donkey of peace, they missed out on him. They missed out on him. You can be a part of the crowd, but still miss Christ. And out of this passage today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, I believe that the message from Jesus, his call to us here is clear. Israel must either accept or reject her Messiah. You and I are being called to choose the same thing today. The king is coming and is here in our midst, but will we recognize him? You know, could it just be that maybe Jesus hasn't moved on our behalf because our expectations have been incorrect about him? And maybe he hasn't moved on us because we've said, Jesus, you can move in our life as long as you do it within our boundaries, within the realm of our expectations, within this box that we have set up for you to move. See, it all comes down to the issue that has been plaguing people for thousands of years, and it's an act of surrender. We say that we surrender to Jesus, but what happens when our expectations don't get met? The Pharisees, they were the most religious of them all, but they were unwilling to surrender to the Messiah because the one that came didn't meet their expectations. The people had been long awaiting the coming king to lead them into victory. But because he didn't meet their expectations, they were unwilling to surrender. And they said, no, give us Barabbas instead. The king is here. But will we recognize him? Are we willing to surrender to Jesus in every aspect of our life, even if it means that we need to change our expectations for how he is wanting to move in and through us? What might happen if we shifted our lives to take that kind of viewpoint? What might happen if we changed our approach and we began looking for ways to align our lives with Jesus rather than trying to align him with us? What would that kind of surrender do in our marriages? If we said, Jesus, it's not about what we want in our marriage. It's about what you want in our marriage. What would that do in our finances if we said, Jesus, it's not about how we're choosing to spend our money or the things that we're choosing to do with our money. It's about how do you want us to use the blessings that you've given us in our finances? What if we did that in our relationships with our kids, those of us that are parents or grandparents? And instead of praying the things of our kids that we want for them, what if we prayed, God, you have your way in their life. 
Instead of us trying to live vicariously through our children and, and make up for the childhood that we didn't have, what if we began to proclaim blessing and favor over them as our children followed out the desires that God has for them? What would happen if we changed just a little bit? What would happen as messengers of the faith as we go out into the dark places of our community and we said, Jesus, help us not to make people fit into our box, into our expectations, but help us to go and proclaim the love and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would happen if we surrendered to that in our lives? What would happen in, in this church if as a body, we became people that surrendered to what Jesus was wanting to do instead of our own agendas. And if you and I, if we chose to begin to live like that, what could Jesus do in this community? Because some people came together and they said, it's not about our expectations. It's not about what we want, but it's about surrendering to what God has for us and that we let the Messiah be the Messiah. We be we and we let he be he. What might happen? I can tell you what it would be. It would be peace. That's what Jesus came to establish. That's his throne. That's his kingdom. He says, peace defined as freedom of the mind from annoyance, distraction, anxiety. It's to be tranquil or serene. That's what Jesus is about. That's what he wants for us, for his people. That's why he wept that day over the city of Jerusalem. He said, if you would only realize what would bring you peace. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Peace doesn't mean that bad stuff isn't going to happen. That's not what Jesus is about. This is what he's about. Peace in Christ means that even though bad things happen, we can rest in the fact that the things of this world are temporary. And that regardless of what happens here, God is in control and he's on his throne. The king is here. But will we choose to recognize him? Will we choose to recognize him? Are you and I willing to pray and live by what Jesus prayed and lived by in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before he was arrested and taken to be crucified and he knelt down and he prayed this, Lord, not my will, yours be done. God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. Complete and total surrender. That is what Palm Sunday is about. That the Messiah is in our midst and we see him and we lay it all down. And we say, it's not about us and our agenda. It's not about this box that we've created that we expect you to operate within. It's about you and what you want for your people and your church and your community. That is what we celebrate today.
So I ask again in the places of your life as we welcome the Messiah in, the King is here. Will you recognize him today? Will you surrender to him today? Thank you for listening to the Christ Walk Podcast. For more information about Christ Walk Church, please visit thechristwalk.com.